Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm definitely not saying another episode because I totally forgot to look up the spreadsheet and which number episode this actually is. I am joined, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And it's episode 133. Is it 133? Okay, I'm holding him to that. (laughs) The two of us are continuing with our first-time read of Jim Butcher's acclaimed Dresden Files. Drew, we read Death Masks, book five this week. Would you kindly recap it for us? All right. Death Masks opens with Harry going on TV once again, but being faced with two new roadblocks. Father Vincent, a skeptic from the Vatican, and Ortega, a vampire from the Red Court. Ortega challenges Harry to a duel, while Father Vincent wants to hire him to find the stolen Shroud of Turin. As Harry leaves the station with technological carnage in his wake, henchmen of Marcones take shots at him. Things take off quickly, as Susan shows up with her new friend Martin in tow. Harry and Murphy visit the mortician Butters and see a mutilated corpse filled with cursed diseases, and the Denarian demon Ursiel nearly kills Harry. With the help of Michael and the other two Knights of the Cross, Shiro and Sanya, Harry narrowly escapes. He quickly tracks down the Shroud on a boat in the Chicago Harbor, but is attacked again by a Denarian demon. Only one of the Shroud thieves survives, Anna, and she also steals Harry's new leather coat. Harry sets up the duel with Ortega. Susan and Harry then go to a swanky art show hosted by Marcone, where Harry hopes to intercept the Shroud. He discovers instead Nicodemus, the leader of the Denarians, and is captured. Shiro finds Harry and offers himself to Nicodemus to secure Harry's release. Susan shows up to help Harry escape and goes with him to the duel with Ortega. As Harry is about to win, however, Ortega cheats, and chaos erupts. Many Red Court vampires are killed, but Ortega gets out with his life, and Harry moves to the bigger problem, stopping Nicodemus and the plague he hopes to unleash using the Shroud. With Sonia and Michael, Harry heads to O'Hare International Airport. They call in a bomb threat to clear out the building, but are still too late. Nicodemus has used Shiro to initiate the plague curse, and is escaping on a train to St. Louis. With Marcone's help, Harry and the knights chase down the train and manage to get the Shroud away from the demons, stopping the curse. Marcone makes off with the Shroud. Harry, in turn, tracks down Marcone and discovers that all of his criminal undertakings are in an effort to heal a young woman in a coma. Harry gives Marconi... Marcone, excuse me. I, I recently found out that uh, it's supposed to be pronounced Marcone and not Marconi. Oh, really? I'm still trying oh, to get that through my head. Fairly certain I've been saying Marconi this entire time. Oh, Damn. I absolutely okay. have. I absolutely <laughs> have. Uh, anyway, uh, Harry gives Marcone three days with the Shroud. As things are calming down, however, Nicodemus has one last trick up his sleeve. He throws one of the cursed coins at Michael's toddler son, Harry, and Dresden is forced to take up the coin to save the boy. He hides it beneath his cellar, within a circle, and under cement. Speaking so, of, of pronouncing characters' names differently, you say Nicodemus. I've been pronouncing it this whole time Nicodemus. Oh, Nicodemus, for Nicodemus sure. Nicodemus as like uh, the demon, it's a, demon kind of root there? Uh, it's a real name, Nicodemus. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I've never, okay. I've never heard that name before. I've heard like Nico as in like a Russian name. Nicodemus is an actual name. Okay, I'm still learning things on the on the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, yeah, Nicodemus is a, um, a biblical figure. Uh, he oh, was a Pharisee. Okay, I can hear the Demas now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. I'm going to have to make a conscious effort to say Nicodemus in this episode here. Um, I'll start off by saying 
Actually, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm going to do a lot of bitching today. Surprise, surprise to anybody who's heard, you know, any episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast before. But it's going to be mostly my style points. Like, when we move on to characters halfway through the episode, I'll be having a lot of great things to say. I loved this book. I promise. Um, not a lot of those positive things are going to be about Harry. But <laughs> we'll get yeah. to that when we get to that. I want to say I like where we started with Harry doing what may be the least subtle possible thing to do about being a wizard. Just sitting down on a freaking talk show to explain your abilities and your job. Like, somewhere deep down inside of us, I know that we we all wanted to see something like that. It was pretty cool. This temper tantrum of his just blasting out all their cameras and the lights. That was epic. It was, like, it was a great start. But you're still batting 100 for starting his books off well, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, it's a good opening. It it kicks off really, really quickly, like I said in the... Um, Parking lot. In the summary. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He really doesn't waste any time getting this one going. I liked that this one was a little more complex, that we kind of had two storylines going at the same time. However, I'm not sure he made it fit together nicely. Um, I, I thought I the ending was really rushed in this one. Uh, it, in fact, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, in fact, it reminded me of uh, Ether of Night by Brandon Sanderson. Really? Uh, it's it's an unpublished book that uh, Brandon wrote uh, much earlier in his career that I largely enjoyed, but it is a book with two very distinctly different stories and plot lines that don't fully come together, and the ending seems really rushed, where one of the plot lines just kind of gets like wrapped up in a couple of pages, and the other one gets the bulk of the the focus. And that's really what happened here with the the duel. Um, the, the duel ends up feeling yeah. totally inconsequential. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so you are gonna say what I what I'm thinking. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. The duel disappointed me quite a bit, and I'll be getting into that. I think in my miscellaneous here, but well, I might be able to to bring it up if I can if I can make it fit now. I just got to go. I have a, I have so much to talk about today. I'll have to find my point here, but. <clears throat> To sum it up, yeah, you're totally right. The duel, to me, felt like it was going to be a larger part of the climax of this book. And it ended up arriving and then being wrapped up so quickly. And it, I, we were then we were going off to the real climax, and it kind of felt <clears throat> cheaper for it. A little bit cheaper for it. For sure. Um, like, I appreciate that Butcher's trying to do something a little more complex with his narratives. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think he totally pulled it off here. Uh, it's, uh, you know, and, and maybe this is just something that I'm going to have to, you know, kind of read on and, and see how it goes. Uh, obviously, Butcher started the series as a very new writer, a, a raw writer. Yeah, okay, yeah. And we're seeing him improve kind of in real time as we're reading through these books, uh, and we're seeing him grow as a writer, and growth and improvement is not always a steady slope. Uh, and, and I think here we're seeing him attempt something that he didn't have the confidence or the writing chops to try three or four books ago um, and, and almost pull it off. Yeah. Yeah, and we've been saying on the Inking Out Loud podcast now that we are still like far more appreciative, I think, both of us, Drew and I, on with with authors that attempt something bolder than they are yet 
uh, mm -hmm. capable of tackling rather than a very competent writer settling for the inane. Yes. Right? Like I'd like... still rather see this kind of thing. And it was still a lot of fun all the way up through and through. But there were poor, there were still parts I just thought didn't land, and the duel was it. I just found my point about the duel. <clears throat> but it turns out I ranted a little more about what happened in the duel itself, and I, I want to try and sum this up to make sure I didn't miss anything, because it didn't really... I'll explain why it didn't land for me. So, all the parties show up. The archive... The archive, listen to me. The archive in Kinsaid, Kinsaid show up, and they, they declared that they're there to make sure no one cheats, and then everyone cheats. Like, what, what was this about Ortega drawing his gun, but they can't see his gun? And Harry's like, you can't, they'll hear the gunshot. But they, they couldn't see that he was doing that already? And the Archive had to ask afterwards, like, what happened? Who broke the treaty first? Then we get the revelation that Martin was there, was revealed to have been faking Susan all along, just so that he could interfere on Harry's behalf. This all seemed, like, really colluded. And that's why, to me, it felt a little rushed. A lot of these ends didn't really tie together to bring it along they just kind of it was kind of left behind in a lot of yes nebulous way. way like, it. and it to me didn't feel like it accomplished anything but strengthened conflicts that were already more than bloody as it was mm -hmm. like it, it didn't feel like anything happened besides a lot of cool things to see in that duel right um yeah my my other big kind of style issue is that we're five books in now I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. And we well, are still getting like massive page to two page long info dumps uh, explaining Harry's apartment and explaining who Murphy is and explaining oh, who Michael is. I didn't and know what that was actually. Like, okay. There, there are, there's a lot of stuff that we just know. And he's like, I can understand a little bit of, you know, just like a, a touchstone, like, oh, let's remind the reader of what this is in case they've forgotten. But he's like, he's got like paragraphs of retreading. And okay. that, um, like, I, I think this could have been uh, a little more concise. And that may have given more room for developing the dual plot line, for instance. Okay. Uh, like, if, if he doesn't need to spend two or three pages at the beginning of the first ten chapters... Uh, you know, retreading the same things we already know, that gives him another chapter or two of room to develop yeah. what was already kind of an underdeveloped plot. Uh, I got, I, I kind of get the impression that he's doing this to, for whatever reason, to leave this open for someone who just wants to pick up the series and start with book five or something, you know? I feel yeah, like so you probably could start with book five and still get the story in this one. And so I think that's why he does it. I'm not saying I really enjoy it, but... I don't so know. I just there's for sure something to that, but up to a certain point, he's losing he's losing that as the series keeps going on. Where I've I've talked about you know some of the tropes and stylistic trappings of hard boiled detective stories that are episodic, and these have stopped being episodic. Like there is absolutely an ongoing through line on the plot level that has been going since book three, uh, and it's it's like he's not entirely willing to admit that they're not episodic anymore, that they have become serial. <laughs> yeah, he wants to play it a little bit of both ways. Yeah, yeah and, and it's just not working for me. <laughs> sure. Uh, I, and, and when I say it's not working for me, I don't, I don't mean that I disliked this book. I, I think this book was, on the whole, pretty good. Um, I don't think I liked it as much as Summer Night or uh, really? Grave Peril. 
but I probably liked it more than Stormfront and Full Moon. Hmm. I would say this is my favorite one yet. I really mm-hmm. liked Full Moon. I don't know. I think a lot of people are going to be confused about that one. I really liked Full Moon, and this <laughs> one, this one took its place. I uh, this is my favorite one so far. There Summer are felt lore elements. The end. There are lore saying? elements in this book that are really. Yes. Oh my god, I'm so ready for these lore elements. Yeah, like, I'm a huge fan of the introduction of the Denarians. Uh, I think Nicodemus is a great villain. Uh, yes. Deirdre's super creepy. I'm yeah. very much looking forward to seeing more of them to, you know, get a look at the other 26. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm in, I'm so much enjoying the direction that this that the overarching story is taking. I, we've I, we heard demons before. I'm and I'm 99% sure we heard angels reference before. But now these players are making their way center stage, and I I loved meeting more knights of the cross. I love Shiro, and and Michael. We know Michael. I just, I love Michael. Sonya was badass. Nicodemus super cool as a villain. Like so so much better than Victor Sells that I almost would have thought this was a different <laughs> author if Harry's sort of sarcastic, sarcastic, cynical wit wasn't keeping me grounded. The lore you were talking about, but the fallen, this demon captain and <laughs> the death stone from outside the Capitanim, outside of the capital O, this is that all that stuff drew. I soaked up like desert rain. Like this is what I want going forward. And with the ending that we got, it looks like I'm going to be getting exactly that. So I am, uh, yeah, for sure. I am really excited. Everyone that's been telling us, just wait, it gets better. You are so right. <laughs> you are so right. And I'm sure many of them are listening to me right now and going, oh my god, he still has no idea. You're also right, because I'm excited that I have no idea. I still get to experience this, the rest of this for the first time. And so I know I said I was going to bitch a lot in my style points. I will be after this. But I still needed to rant about how much I love where the, the, the meta plot is going, because I'm super stoked for it. Yeah, uh, that is certainly where the majority of my investment is uh because still i don't particularly like harry i'm not super invested in him as i'm actually losing a little bit more like for him and i'll get into that afterwards i'm I'm with you there yeah um but uh, but butcher's doing a good job filling out the ranks of characters around him i've already you know talked about how much i like thomas and i like michael uh i enjoyed shiro a lot i now that I have a little more context for Molly Carpenter, uh, I really liked her introduction. Um, uh, I, I like Charity. I uh, I still cool mostly like Marcone. Um, like they're they're just good supporting characters around Harry. I don't like Susan. Susan, I um. We'll we'll get to that in, in character <laughs> stuff. Um, okay, I'm yeah. just kind of tired of that plot line. Yep. <clears throat> yep. But cool. I want to get into things uh, that that we're not too thrilled about. Yeah, I mean, this is, we're still learning some new in-universe magic that's kind of popping out of no, or at least seemingly popping out of nowhere. At least, like, have we heard the term "listening" before this with like capital L again? Listening. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We haven't actually seen him do it though, have we? Um, I think he did it. He's done that at least once or so twice wrong. before. Yeah. I could be so wrong on this i just don't remember if we'd ever seen him i didn't like when he started the listening in this book i went what have we seen him do that before is this another new thing that's just popping up but then we also learned that harry he explains to susan later um to use his words he's not isn't good enough to craft an enchantment to take it on the road apparently 
range of an enchantment is tied in proximity to one's home now, I guess. Like, we've heard before that, uh, like, an intruder, someone who's not invited into your home, not, not a house, but a home, that distinction is important. Like, their, their powers could be taken away a little bit. They could leave a little bit of it at the door. But I guess now the enchantment, we're learning that the enchantments you cast at home have a direct relation and strength to the proximity to your home. Like, we hadn't heard that before, had we? Um, no, I, I was also taken a little bit aback. Uh, by the way, I just looked it up and listening with a capital L is brought up in the first book. Okay. Does he do it yeah. though? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, All right. I'll leave my word from that I one. listened. I was... Listening isn't hard to do. No one has practice at it nowadays, but you can train yourself to pay to attention fair, to the senses. To be fair, the first book, that's right. That was what we did with Megan Smythe, like months and months before we started back into the series yes. again. Yeah. yeah, but no, I, okay. I'll take the, the hit on that one. I, I just didn't remember that, I guess. Um, yeah, there, obviously there's still new magic and I anticipate that will keep coming in as the series goes on. Um, you know, he, he wants to add more layers to his world building. Sure. Uh, I didn't have much of a problem with that. I still have a bit of a problem with the like magic interfering with technology thing and how being it, inconsistent it just, at least. Yeah. 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 Like it's, it, it never blocks technology when we need technology to move the plot along. Like Yes. Oh my god, like, yes. Like phones phones just always work for Harry. Like Yeah. Um I, I don't know. And and there's like inconsistency it, in, in uh like he talks about how it's pretty much like pre World War Two or post World War Two that it, it really starts <laughs> messing with things, but then he talks about how it messes with cars and cars are pre World War Two tech and like Yeah. Uh, so there's helicopter there's just a lot of inconsistency there. <laughs> oh yeah, like the helicopter worked fine except for like one small little thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a cool idea. I just want to see it be consistent, that's all. It would be better if it was consistent. Yeah. Uh yeah. but yeah, do you have any more kind of style points? Um Let's see here. Oh, uh, you know what? You, you you had alluded to this earlier, um, but I'm I'm going to I'll still talk about that actually in my points about Susan. So I'll uh, actually no you know no I'm gonna say it here. You know why? Because this is again I was I was realizing this as I was writing this in my points about Susan that I didn't want to make them all about what she is. I wanted to make them more about who she is. It's kind of my problem hmm. with that character is how much I'm given to talk about one way and not the other. I'll bring this up now because this is about what she is. I'll save who she is for her actual character discussion. Um, that sort of shameless, gratuitous sex scene with the rope. Yep. I kind of, I kind of felt that was a little unnecessary. Did we really need that scene to happen? Or uh, even if we did, do we need that? Do we need to be there for it? I. Like I had, a, I had another sex scene listed as my favorite scene in book two. I, I, I realize that. I understand that. But this one didn't feel like that one did. That was more of like an exploratory character thing, you know, showing Susan's heart and showing, more importantly to me, like Harry's vulnerability. This was not that at all. This was just kind of disturbing in a few ways. I just didn't like it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I think okay. this felt like Butcher trying to write erotica. And it, it was very out of place. Um, right, out of place. Not to say it was bad, bad, completely like, written, but it was out of place. Well, mm, I think it was a little. Well, I'm just saying not to I say that. I didn't think it, it was particularly be... well written. I'm not uh, going like, to comment on the quality of that one. He's treaded along this line before. Uh, you know, we yep. had the dream 
um, like with some graphic sexual detail. Um, uh, but here it was like, he just decided, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go all the way. Like I'm going to really, really get into the nitty gritty details of, yeah, I'm going to get X rated on this one. And it, it felt very out of place for the book. Um, like you said, I don't think it added anything. We already knew, we've already seen this this kind of um, uh, internal struggle that both Harry and Susan have regarding her condition. Uh, uh, you know what, I do want to yeah, clarify. I did that. not like it. If I, I did also add the stipulation, like, did we need to even be there for it, even if it did need to happen? But you know what? If Considering where they... I still have to admit, considering where they were in the relationship, deciding that this was officially going to be over, and if it had suddenly happened and we just learned about it instead of being there for it, we'd been like, w what? <laughs> so I think because of where they both were, if it was going to happen, we would need to be there. But I still don't think it needed to happen. That, yeah, I still want to at least make that... Concession, like, even I can like understand it. an argument for having it, having Harry and Susan lose control and have sex. Um, but it felt very over the top, the manner in which he had it happen. Like it, it really was some like pseudo BDSM erotica yeah. stuff just <laughs> randomly in the middle of this urban fantasy book. And it felt almost uh, like it came out of Jay Kristoff. Like it, <laughs> Uh, really what it reminds me of is Laurel K. Hamilton. Uh, oh, I, I haven't read very much of her stuff, but she has another like supernatural urban fantasy series uh, oh, in a okay. similar vein. Uh, and and uh, they start off as a lot like the Dresden Files. And then at a certain point, it just stops being like supernatural urban fantasy and just unabashedly becomes erotica like just smut romance it just switches books. genres for one scene yeah. and then continues like if if uh you you've almost certainly seen the covers like if you ever walk into a barnes and noble or borders or whatever like oh, they that popular eh? roll through the fantasy section there are the covers that always have like it's like a black cover and then like a half naked person on the cover like usually huh. tinted red or blue or purple or okay. whatever. Okay, I'm gonna keep yeah. an eye on next time I find myself. Um, well, we don't have Barnes and Noble here in Canada. I don't think up here would be yeah. like a chapters indigo, but I'll check that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, like just any any bookstore. That I remember yeah. as a kid, you know, strolling down the fantasy aisle looking for something new to read after you know the latest Wheel of Time book, and there were there was always like a whole shelf of just like half naked people. It was Laurel K. Hamilton, you know. <laughs> um okay. and that's what this right. scene felt like where i was like this okay. is not like this is not what i signed up for <laughs> right 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 okay okay shall we get into our characters my friend yeah let's do it all right let's get harry out of the way because obviously he's the main character but also i feel like we're gonna have the most to say about him and, and i want to get the negative out of the way first because i want the rest of the episode to be a lot of fun as much fun as i actually found the book so kind of sucks to say this because I've been saying all along that Harry exasperates me. Yet, you know, I still enjoyed reading him because he's got a great sense of humor, even if he doesn't even always like see it that way. For me, that balance has kind of started to shift. I'm getting a little more frustrated by him, like mostly with his just his wandering attention. His jokes still make me laugh, um, but they're not changing, and so it's, they're losing a bit of ground, I suppose. The reason, put it, okay, the reasons I have to roll my eyes 
or get irritated with him are evolving. But the reasons I have to like him, like his morality and his self-deprecating humor, those are staying exactly the same. Susan is back, and he immediately moves all of his mental faculties to his penis. He can't seem to focus on anything when Susan is around. He takes that with him everywhere. I have a quote here. Ford Hill frowned and nodded. What happened to you last night? I told him the short version, all about the art auction and the denarians. But I, when in this word drew, elided? I elided, elided yeah. over the details afterward, which were none of his business. Oh, really? You didn't mean to, you mean to tell me you didn't tell the priest about your night of interactive S&M bondage porn with your vampire girlfriend? Like, he even <laughs> says after this, I'm not particularly religious, but come on, the man was a priest. As if he may have explained that to somebody else who wasn't a priest. Like, no, he would not have explained that. I feel like this moment was just here. It was just another reason for Butcher to remind us that Harry got laid. Like, uh, it, I want to just double check with you. When you read that line, did he say elided or elided over? Uh, let, me t- let me see here. I can even do it. I, eh, I might have written the quote down wrong. Oh, it's elided over in my quote here, but I can also do a really mm. quick book check. I may have just... Yeah, so he misused the word elided. Did he? Elided means to, like, cut out. So you don't need to use over there. Yeah, I elided over. It would just be, I elided that part. Ah, yeah, it's it's definitely over in the book as well. Interesting. Oh. Uh, Anyway. Like, the reason for that line doesn't logically make sense to me. So I just, I feel like we just butcher wanted to remind us that Harry got laid again. I was like, okay, all right. Right. Um... it was funny that you mentioned how um, you're still laughing at his jokes. And, there are a couple you know, that made me not. Turn of phrase. Uh, but that yeah. his jokes aren't changing. They're, it's the same. And I actually made note of that. Uh, in Full Moon, on our episode, I specifically noted one line that made me laugh. And it was when he pulled up outside of the, the Lycanthropes' garage... And I don't remember what it was called, but it was something full moon garage or you know, whatever. And and he goes, well, you know, well, thank God it wasn't obvious or anything. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's used that exact turn of phrase like four more times since then. And I haven't oh, laughed God. a single time like this one <laughs> in this book that I noticed was when he's pulling up to Wrigley Field for the duel. He's talking about how it's like. It's all empty and it looks skeletal and creepy, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah." Well, well, thank God it's not too creepy or anything. And I was like, "I I saw that." That doesn't make me laugh at all. No. Okay. No. I saw that and I smiled and I was like, "It's a good one. It's the same one, but I still, I still appreciate it." Yeah, he's done it like four times now. Ah, you you ruined it for me. Now I'm gonna notice it going forward. (laughs) Damn. Okay, I'm gonna bit. I'm back to like the the thing I was just bitching about. They leap from the speeding car. And Susan protects Harry from all the bouncing and rolling, and they come to a stop, and Harry's mind is still in the gutter, thinking about how nice Susan feels beneath him, how her legs are placed around him and whatnot. I'm just, I, I'm sitting there wanting to yell, oh my god, we get it, Susan is really hot. Now, can we please get back to what's happening, right? And then, back at Michael's house, just before she sneaks away, Harry is with Anna Valmont, and she gets out of bed, and she steps wrongly on her leg, and she collapses. Oh. But good thing Harry is there to catch her. But I wonder where his hands would land. Of course he would apparently catch her by her boobs. You know, hands off, she growls. And he even needs to add the extra detail. I jerked my hand off of something pleasantly firm and smooth or something. I was like... Uh, yeah, it, it, like... It's all the time. I don't remember the actual wording there, but it, whatever the wording was, made it clear that he, 
he did intend to grab her by the boob. And it's like, like, dude, that's so just, like, creepy. Like, come on, man. It doesn't say he intended it, but you get the feeling that, like, it, this just sort of happens because he's Harry Dresden. It always happens this way. I don't, want, I don't want to give the impression that I always bitch about this kind of thing. I, I promise I'm not one to bitch about this kind of thing because of what it, about, of the subject material. But it's come to my attention now, and so I am seeing it everywhere. It doesn't feel organic anymore. It feels like we need one or two moments every chapter. It, just, it bothers me just because it's not subtle. Robert Jordan was subtle about it. Jim Butcher is a great at many things, but I don't think this being subtle about Harry being a horn dog, that is not one of them. It's just it feels like he's adding it as a special part of his recipe and it just stands out so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do wanna say something nice about Harry. Okay. Um I really enjoyed his interaction with Molly. I thought Did you? That scene had some like surprising um surprisingly good almost like parental uh kind of dynamics to it where uh. um like there was an understanding between them that uh like that she's clearly missing from her parents she has to hide who she is from her parents and harry was understanding of it um i i liked that um, okay, next question. How old is this girl? Uh, she's like 14, I think. 14? I got the impression that she was 14. That's kind of why the, I actually wrote down this scene in my style, but I decided not to talk about it because we were kind of already past. But it kind of disturbed me, this scene. I mean, she's just making innuendos left and right. And it's it, obviously I, Butcher's having fun making Harry uncomfortable with well, it. Yeah, I mean, have but, you met a 14-year-old? Yeah, I wasn't quite like like that at 14, (laughs) at least not to adults when I I was 14, with my friends, sure. So I think that's where I'm getting at with the dynamics of the scene, is that because he's not her dad or her mom, but is an adult, she's desperate for adult like validation, where she feels like she's becoming an adult as a a teenager who has hit puberty and has reached that age where it's like, you know... I'm I'm starting to not be a kid anymore. Right. But she's not getting any of that sort of respect, and so she's desperate for it. And that's why she's pushing with Harry, okay. because she I... wants him to view her as an adult. And he's meeting her on that middle ground to an extent. And then she goes over the edge, as teenagers are wont to do. And he's like, okay. You know, like... Um, you know, I was I was at least glad that... Um, there wasn't the the same hairy leering at teenagers sense uh, with that scene as we Why got with the, the alphas. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, like when he's talking about like this teenage girl in a bathrobe, and he's like, "Wow, she really fills out that bathrobe." Like, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it, there wasn't that, so that was good. It, like, it really felt like a surrogate father daughter kind of situation. I, I feel like I would have appreciated that aspect of it more or at least least, i should say be able to appreciate that aspect of it more if it had if she had been more of a part of this book from beginning to end and maybe if this was something like a hint or a little joke here and there but this was she was molly was concentrated inside one single chapter and we got like a whole book worth of her trying to be a grown-up in one scene and it was Mm -hmm. just 
beat after beat after beat. Like, um, I, I had listed it here. That I was like, okay. She changes her skirt in front of him, and he's got he's got to turn around, and he notices her stash her bra, I think it was, and and she makes fun of the handcuffs on his wrists, and alludes to them being fun time handcuffs over the other kind of handcuffs. She realizes that the word sex makes him uncomfortable, and she has a field day with that, and she like she she even suggests that Harry ties Susan up. The irony of that actually happening later that's not lost on me, but I was like, come on, this is one single conversation where all of this happened, and I feel like. This could have been interspersed a little more. We could have like had Molly along for the the journey a little more. It it felt too concentrated for me. Hmm. Okay. Um. I I don't feel the same way. Uh. But I I can understand where you're coming from with that. Uh. I I admit I was surprised we didn't get more Molly than we did. I thought she was I thought be there was going to be yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, but the, she was really only in like one more scene towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, where she and Harry kind of have this little, like, sarcastic, you know, moment. Um, But, uh, and maybe I'm letting, like, my future knowledge tint things a little bit, because I know that Molly, like, is more of a character in the future, because the... Oh, The first... Oh, the first, right. uh, yeah, Dresden I ever read was a short story from Molly's point of view. And granted, I do not remember anything from that story. All I remember is there's like a scene where she goes into a vampire court right. for like a, a dinner party or something. That's right. um, I totally forgot about this. Yeah, like I don't remember anything <laughs> from from that, which is good. Like I'm glad I don't. Uh, but okay. I do know that she is more involved as things go on. Uh, and so... Yeah. I'm just glad that that foundation was built to me. It felt like in a, in a kind of heartwarming way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, another, another thing about Harry that kind of disappointed me here. I'm not done bitching about Harry yet. Sorry, everybody. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. I was trying to make a positive point about him. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Hey, I I have a very positive point as my last Harry point. So make sure I don't forget that. Um, but I was still a little disappointed with Harry when Susan showed up and he starts doing like the psychotic insecurity thing over Martin. That mm. the immediate mm. dismissal, mm-hmm. the contempt right away, the mocking to his face and behind his back when he's just talking to Susan about Martin. The numerous times that Susan is trying to talk to Harry and he just keeps plowing over her words like, nope, nuh-uh, he's stupid. I can't believe you choose him. He, he stopped acting like an adult as soon as Martin yeah. entered the equation every time and he just turned into an unreasonable and petty teenager. Uh, I was really I, not impressed with that. I actually had a, a note from that chapter where I said, well, I guess Harry's just a teenager now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like I acted almost like that when I was exact 16, same 17, words. 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. He I, like he does not read like a guy. He's in his like what early mid thirties, right? I got the impression he's in early forties. Early forties. But I, Man, could I I'm pretty he's sure they've like said his age, but I just forgot it or or didn't pay enough attention. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but like he <laughs> he regressed like a solid twenty years in that scene. Like yeah, yeah, <laughs> at least Oh, God and. This this weakness and almost willful blindness he has, where any woman in his life is concerned, I'm just I'm so t- I'm so tired of it. As he has Anna Valmont cornered, she and I quote slumped her shoulders in defeat. And I read that line. She slumped her shoulders in defeat. And I stared at it for a few seconds. And I immediately thought, no, no, Harry, 
don't, oh, for f**k's sake, just this once, don't, please don't <laughs> fall for it. And sure enough, he thinks about whether she should have had someone with her, her friends with her, and how vulnerable she is now, and how guilty he feels about it. I was like, oh, God. And then, of course, she clobbered me, and I'm left holding my e-reader like, of course she did, you dumbass. Like, what are you, <laughs> how are you still not picking up on this? How? Um, yeah, I, I kind of liked Anna Valmont. Oh, I like her as I a character. I hope she comes back. Uh, I definitely hope she comes back. As but a yeah, I, totally it fine. did drive like me it. nuts how he like repeatedly. He just never learns. The guy's just, the guy's an idiot. He's so like. Uh... All right, I want to talk. I want to say my good thing about Harry. Well, I, I have thing? a I have a good thing too. I have one okay. more good thing about Harry. Want to start? Uh, his interactions with the archive. Yep. Sure. Okay. Uh, once again, like I don't. know, Maybe this is just where Harry needs to go. Like maybe he needs to have a a kid. But, like, when he has opportunities to be a role model, to be a father figure, that's yeah. when he's at his best. When it's with the Alphas, well, when it's with it, Molly, when yes. he's interacting with the Archive, yes. like, that's when Harry's at his best. Yes. The problem is actually becoming a father, because that involves women, and Harry is an unmitigated idiot with women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... yeah. I can. I, I totally agree. I think with every single thing you just said, he's at his best when he gets to be the grudging but you know, respectable parent. It's it. it yeah. Yeah. It, my the positive thing I wanted to say about Harry is he had this. He had a really insightful one-liner for me, and it it was a line that actually wasn't meant for comedy for once, and it really stood out to me. And I wonder if he might have been quoting someone actually, uh, because we don't get the context with his allusions, but there's a more. Uh, there's a moment when Thomas the Vampire asks Harry, hey, like, why? He wanted to make the duel fair. And Harry replies, life would be unbearably dull if we had the answers to all of our questions. And I like that. And I know I've heard that sentiment before. I've also heard it in fantasy books before. It's not a particularly original idea. But for some reason, coming from Harry Dresden, who has so many questions that frustrate him, I don't know, it just, it hits different coming from Harry Dresden, and I really liked that line. Life would be unbearably dull if we had the answers to all our questions. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Oh, and he also... <laughs> another really good one. I think it was Michael talking to Harry, and Michael's like, so did Ortega refuse to cancel the duel? And Harry's like, he made an offer I couldn't excuse. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah, yeah. so good. That is so good. I like that. His one-liners are still on point, but that's that's basically everything I wanted to say about Harry. At this point. Okay. Uh, who do you want to move on to next? Susan. Okay. I only have one point. That's Susan, really. Uh, okay. I stopped when she, when she showed up. I actually, like, when she first came back, I stopped. And before we even got that scene, as soon as I recognized her, I wrote on my phone, you know what? If she's stronger, and more importantly, smarter, I'm totally okay with Susan being back. Like we've had, we had a whole novel without her in Summer Night. We got to see Harry and Murphy do some more bonding, even if it's, at the time, it's still understandably not the right one. I, I don't want Susan to die. I just don't think that she works with Harry in the way that Murphy does. So when Susan, like with Susan, Harry just turns into this lecherous old dog who can't think with anything besides his wang, and we, we get to see that very explicitly in this one. But Susan has clearly herself been up to some of her own good in, in Honduras, and she's in Honduras, right? At least in South America, Guatemala. What? Oh, 
the. Um, I thought she was in Central America. Oh, she might have. Oh, I might have got that completely wrong, actually. Um, but like, the, I'm, uh, I may be wrong too. The Fellowship of Saint Giles up. that she's a part of, like the the the, mm-hmm. the part humans that are like rebelling against the the Red Court. Like, I love that. I love. I feel far better about her as a character now that she's found an even greater purpose and has devoted herself entirely to it. Like Harry and Susan feel like two people whose relationship is so animalistic that it can only work if neither one has it in their top priority. And I want to see both of them move on to bigger and better things. I'm kind of hoping Susan's gone for good, but I like where she ended up. And I like that she has this bigger cause to fight for. And so because of that, I hope it, she continues on it yeah. on her own way. and doesn't come you back. Know, I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I agree with you. I, I thought you put it really well earlier when you said there's a, a a hard difference between what Susan is and who Susan is. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, this was who she is. That's why I saved it for the Susan discussion. Um, So much of, so much of Susan has just been what she is in relation to Harry. Uh, You know, she Mm -hmm. starts off as, you know, she's sort of this media conduit, you know, like she's, She's Harry's outlet so that his stories can can make it out to the right people who, who actually pay attention to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he's, you know, uh, uh, or she's his hot date, his squeeze for a little while. And then she's the person who can get Harry to be a little vulnerable. And uh, like, it's all, everything about her is just, what can she do for Harry? And now she finally has agency independent of Harry. Um, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm yes. okay with it if this isn't the last we see of Susan. But I really hope the Harry Susan romance plotline dies here. 100% agree. Thank you. <laughs> I actually have a prediction about Susan coming later, so I also think we're going to see more of her. But but I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with what you said. I hope I yeah. want to see it on her own terms doing her own thing and not because of something that Harry needs. Okay. Um yeah, I don't think I had anything else about Susan. Same, same. Michael? You talk about Michael? My man. My man? Yeah, big fan. Drew McCaffrey? Yeah, I still like, I still like Michael a lot. Yeah, um, He's... So, a couple episodes ago, I went on a, a bit of a rant about the way Catholicism was um, represented in these books. Or at least an aspect of Catholicism that was represented. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think Butcher did a good job of toning that down in this one, um, and spent more time on like actual Catholic philosophy rather than trying to like play off Catholic stereotypes as jokes. Would you Would uh, you think it's perhaps because we got Shiro and Sonya, so he could like so... divide his representation a little wider? No, because neither of them are Catholic. Oh yeah. Well, okay. Um, they're not they're both Knights of the Cross, though. Right, but uh, Shiro is—I uh, think he said he's Baptist. Um, okay. Uh, and then Sonya was a self-professed agnostic. Yeah, yeah. I and, remember that conversation. That almost made my favorite scene. Sorry, I'm cutting you off here. Continue. Um, but. But there were more opportunities in this book for Michael to to really talk about 
Catholic philosophy and Catholic attitudes toward sin and toward mistakes that people make and and really driving home this idea of mercy which is a core core belief in Catholicism um, the idea that everybody will make mistakes at some point but God is merciful if you desire his mercy and uh and and so we have a couple of pretty key scenes in the book where that comes to the surface and we i i think um yeah the scene with cassius is the the major one uh and in fact the scene after that when harry leaves after destroying cassius with the yeah, baseball was... bat and and even then even even through michael's disapproval and and Harry's kind of jokingly like, oh, you think God will forgive me? And and Michael's like, God's mercy's always there, you know. Um, like Harry's trying to sort of play it off as a, a an angry joke, but Michael takes it seriously, and I really really liked that. Uh, I think Michael has pretty solidly taken over the role of my favorite character in the series at this yeah. point. Like he was nice. already kind of right on the cusp there. Like I really liked Thomas. I still really like Thomas. Thomas I'm is entertaining. Thomas as hell. Fan, but I can see why people like him. Um, yeah. He's, he's over the top, but he's entertaining. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, and I've, I like Murphy and, and I like, uh, I like a few different characters. I, I talked earlier about the strength of the side characters, but in this book, I thought Michael really took a stranglehold on that crown for me. Ah, yeah, no, I, I, he was Michael was really cool. Again, I obviously I don't see Michael being anything but badass. But uh, to me, and I, this took took me by surprise because I was such a big Michael fan before. I still feel like for me, he was still like he was outshone by not one but both of his brothers in arms here. Like meeting Shiro and Sonya again, like both the, that was that was awesome. And Michael still plays. A brilliant counterpoint to the the aging Japanese and the strong silent Russian, like there, that's that the dynamic, and then the whole like wholesome homegrown American, righteous American about Michael. I still, I it it's it's it, it paints a perfect picture. Like, I still think though Michael needs to consider one of two things: either a career change, and I'm not talking about carpentry, or and this hurts me to say it, leave his family, because. Like being a literal hand of God, it's a great way to make numerous and deadly enemies. This is exactly the kind of job that really, really, really should not be following you home. And yet somehow we have been to Michael's house like every book so far since we've met him. Like, there's always something or someone showing up at his house or taking refuge at his house. Like, this dude has a family. Sooner or later, the wrong person or thing is going to learn about Michael's house. In fact, it happened at the end of this last book. Uh, Nicodemus shows up. I almost said Nicodemus again. Side question also. <laughs> Drew, I can yeah. see why Harry would need to hide if, you know, temporarily what happened to him with the coin, but surely he's not just going to keep his mouth shut about the fact that Nicodemus clearly knows where Harry's family lives, right? Because he hasn't said anything to Harry yet at the end of this book. Or to Michael, I should say. He's like, I'm going to hide this, that this happened to me with this coin, but you would think... The, the, the way you... By the, 
the way you phrase that makes it clear to me that you do think Harry is going to keep his mouth shut about it. Right. I just, <laughs> he's going to obviously need to keep his mouth shut about the, the coin. Okay. Because it's yeah. going to make him a target or, or the people are going to, sure. That's a whole barrel of worms, but he still has to tell Michael, yo, this, this demonic creature knows where your family lives. You've got a GTFO, right? And how is he going to explain <laughs> that to Michael without saying, oh, by the way, I saved your son's life. Michael's going to be like, what? He just showed up and tipped his hat to you and drove off. I don't know. I just wanted to see where you thought that was going. I should have said that. No, I, I very much think he's keeping that all. all oh, God, that is such a shitty thing. Come back to this Nico- Nicodemus knows where his family is and, and he's going to keep that secret. Was he going to pay for them to take a vacation somewhere? That excuse is going to run thin. I, I should have saved this for, <laughs> for predictions, but we're still on Michael. I love Michael. I, that, that's kind of why I'm making such a, such a big deal about this, because I don't want anything to happen to Michael's family. Especially with that scene, well, I mean, not like it would have been less before, but with that scene we had with Charity, like, we got such a closer look at that family dynamic in this book, and it, I'm so concerned for them because of Harry's stubbornness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, that, that's all I wanted to say about Michael. I'm still a big fan. Still a big fan. No, that's that's good. Okay. Uh, let's see, who else? Um... What do you think of Ortega? Ortega? I just my thoughts on Ortega are kind of wrapped up in this bit of disappointment I felt over the uh, the final duel. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like well, I thought he was going to be a much bigger threat. He had potential as a villain, but got so thoroughly overshadowed by Nicodemus and the rest of the Denarians. I was like, yeah. And then, and then he gets, like, nuked at the end of the book. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure he's actually dead. You know, that, oh, that no, he's traditional, you know, if there's, if there's no body, don't trust it. Um, but it, he just ended up being quite underwhelming, especially in comparison to the other antagonists in the book. He yeah. wasn't as threatening even as, like, uh, Mab or Leah, like some of the previous antagonists. Um, he, he didn't even come off as threatening as Bianca, I thought. Really? I didn't take Bianca particularly seriously, but it could just be me. I mean, like, she had... Bianca at least outsmarted Harry thoroughly and trapped him, you know, in that scene in Grave Peril with, uh, you know, at the party where she gets... Amarachius and she's gonna destroy the sword by killing a, an innocent person and like and yeah. she's, she traps Harry and forces him into like starting the war like um you know breaking the the accords or whatever it was um Ortega never outsmarted Harry like I the closest was like oh I'm gonna have this underhanded thing where I'm gonna pull a gun on you it was like eh. Right, I didn't. I didn't feel any of that until the point when the duel started. I took, I took Ortega so seriously as a threat until the duel started, and then yeah. for some reason he just turned into a massive disappointment. I was like, "Come on, right. really?" Right. Yeah. Um, I do love the. <laughs> as we'll say, I do love the idea of Ebenezer using that Soviet satellite to wipe out Broski's compound in Honduras. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will say though, that that just can't happen, and I know. I know I'm about to hear a litany of Rob. It's freaking magic. Why do you got to do this every time? But a half mile wide crater from satellite debris. Come on. 
Come on. It's a satellite. It's not a oh, freaking oh, asteroid. I... I very much view that as they use the satellite coming down to mask literally magically nuking his... Okay, because I would say this sounds like nuclear bomb level energy. That's literally my next sentence. Yeah, I... I <laughs> okay. My impression was that they actually launched a magical attack on his uh, property and used the satellite, like made the satellite fall right there to cover it up. Ah. Because the fact that like... It's it's so precise where they left the village alone right next door. Like I don't know. And then it starts uh, a big controversy in the in world that nobody knows about. Mm -hmm. Satellite. Yeah, I definitely saw beams. it as as. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 I, I like that explanation. It, it reminded more. me actually. Mm, uh, oh. How do I say this without spoilers? Spoilers for Blade of Taishal. The okay. end of Blade of Taishal. Uh-huh. 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 Okay. With a a certain person's estate that gets that it yep. reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <See> that. <laughs> anyway, uh other characters. Um Shiro. What about Shiro? I love Shiro. Super badass. Yeah. I, not surprised he, that he got the ending that he did. I mean, it felt a little archetypal, uh, if I'm being entirely honest. Yeah, no, but I was the, okay with it. It was, was so... It was telegraphed. Like, the first scene he's in is... Everybody's talking about how, like, you're, you've are you gotten old and slow. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, he's, he's clearly going to go out like a badass. Yep, like, <laughs> I was okay with it. The, the older, like, sensei yeah. type, very traditional, finds a way yeah. to sacrifice himself for his pupils, and yet still finds a way to turn it into another lesson for them. I'm just... I, yeah. Oh, Shiro is just... Yeah, yeah. I have no problems with Shiro as a character. I loved it. Like, look, tropes are tropes. Some tropes are tropes for a reason. Because yep. they're good. Yep. <laughs> this is a good trope. I love I loved this it. kind of stuff. I loved it. I loved uh, it. What did you I, think I, of Sonya, though? I love Sonya, too. I, I, I love all three yeah. of these dudes. Michael, Sonya, and Shiro. I mean, Sonya, like, with, with, his, with, his, with his thoughts... With, the, with his conversation, I loved a picturing of Russian accent on this guy. It was just, it, he, he felt like um, a solid, you know, uh, dependable blade at one's back, proverbially speaking. Like, I, I felt good that Sonya was there going into battle with Harry and uh, with, Sh uh, not with Shiro, pardon me, with Marcone. Like, I was like, cool, all right. I love the fact, like, that Shiro's on the left side there. I feel great about it. I, he was See, cool. I... I was a little underwhelmed with Sonya. I thought okay. that, like, because he he just he he got his ass kicked every fight. Like yeah, he got injured in every fight. And not like, Yamcha though. He's he's still pretty. I don't know. Uh, it's actually funny you brought up Yamcha. Like he totally, <laughs> like totally reminded me of of Yamcha, and obviously not with the same extremes of Dragon Ball where. People can die and get resurrected all the time, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was like he he just got totally overshadowed by Shiro for me. Where it, it, Shiro and Michael got to be the badasses, and Sonya was like, "Okay, well, we need all three of the knights involved here." But he's just gonna like get oh, wrecked like early in every fight, and and I hope uh, I expect. Butcher will spend more time developing him, and and to be fair, you know, there's the whole thing about how he's the youngest. He's got a lot to learn still. That kind of a thing. 
Yeah. Um, but but I was I was a little underwhelmed by Sonya, so I hope there's better better for him in the future. It's funny that we were, we we just we we <laughs> we had brought up Dragon Ball Z because I had that's not even the only Dragon Ball Z reference I had in my notes, believe it or not. Ooh, my, really? <laughs> my next note was about Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus, damn it! I I'm gonna keep doing that. I'm just gonna keep doing <laughs> that. Um, I thought he was such a better vi- uh, villain than Victor Sells. Like, yeah, and Victor Sells is gonna be my metric for bad guys. I think for the rest of the series, and this is where <laughs> I brought it in. It's gonna be like power levels in DBZ, or maybe Dragon Ball Z or Bridge for anybody who's seen it. They measure fighters by number of Raditz in terms of their power. I think <laughs> I'm gonna start measuring villains by number of Victor Cells. Oh my gosh! <laughs> number of Victor Cells that I can take seriously. Do um um Broski in book two, Fenton, Denton, uh, failed Dale. Fe- um, shit, Denton. I can't remember his name. Denton, Denton, Denton. These are like three Victor Cells worth. I wasn't too impressed by the undead sorcerer in book three though. I I don't even remember his name. Um, uh oh. The D, do the sound. Krasov. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Crap. The queens in the last book were like 10 Victor Cells each. I was able to take them seriously. But Nicodemus? He was like 500 <laughs> Victor Cells. Now? <laughs> this is going to drive me nuts uh, trying to remember. Kravos! Yes, Kravos. There we go. You. I always get I had, mixed up between him and Kratos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Kravos, um, yeah, that's how I remembered it there. But like, like Nicodemus, that's like 500 Victor Cells worth of threat in my books. Like, I am thoroughly intimidated as a reader by Nicodemus. Oh, yeah. I'm scared for Harry in ways that I haven't been with the Red Court or the White Court or even uh Leah the Godmother. Like Nicodemus, the fallen, the the ally of Enduriel, captain of Lucifer, <laughs> like these are the threats that I can't wait to see going forward and I'm so spooked by them. Yeah, I, I gotta say I was surprised. I didn't expect there to be this sort of um heaven versus hell kind of imagery in the conflict. Yeah, uh, I'm not displeased by it. I I lap this stuff up like my favorite <laughs> my favorite parts of um, Supernatural are seasons four and five when the, yep. the Heaven versus yep. Hell like really Same. kicks off. The two best um, seasons of Supernatural, one hundred percent. Yeah, uh, I just for some reason didn't expect it. I thought this was going to be a more like mundane Supernatural. I'm right there with uh, you. I am so there with like, you. Like, I definitely thought uh, we were going to have, at least for a while, the Vampire War be the main thing. But after this book, the Vampire War, it seems so inconsequential. Yeah. I'm I'm glad for that, because I'm tired of vampires by now. I realize this came out 18 years ago, but now in 2020. Dude, I'm telling you, it was the trends. It was the trends. In in 2003, which is when this book came out, that was the trend, and I I would probably have loved it back then. (laughs) It's not Butcher's fault that I'm pissed off about vampires, and so jaded right. on vampires in 2021 that is nothing yeah. like butcher's fault but i'm, I'm just, glad that yeah i'm just waiting uh to see if we get to a book coming out in like 2009 2010 and suddenly oh, no. zombies are a big threat <laughs> yeah really oh god or, yeah um but. i think those are all my character points i'm ready to go into miscellaneous which is actually kind of a long list what about you yeah that works for me i don't have a ton of miscellaneous points but i have a couple Actually, I've already brought up half of them uh, previously just in the natural flow of conversation, so I don't have too many either. But you can start us off. Go ahead, man. Uh, okay. Well, so we, we were just talking about Nicodemus. Yeah, we were. And, and I wanted to point out um, 
I mentioned earlier that Nicodemus is a biblical figure. Uh, he was a Pharisee. Uh, he only appeared in the Gospel of John. And he stands out among the Pharisees because most of the Pharisees were antagonistic toward Jesus. But Nicodemus like approached Jesus to learn. Um, and, and in fact, after Jesus' death, Nicodemus is the one who brings the embalming spices. And, and uh, um, like, I think it's myrrh and I don't remember. I really should have <laughs> written this down. I am um, learning everything that you're saying. But I've never heard I it thought before. it was fascinating that, so Nicodemus is a saint um, in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. Nicodemus is recognized as a saint. Oh. But, and, and so having him be a, an ant, I mean, not that I'm saying that this Nicodemus is supposed to be the Pharisee from the Bible, um, but just that he used the name, a saint becoming a the vessel or partner of Satan's captain. Uh, but on top of that, so the Shroud of Turin, of course, is supposed to be the embalming cloth that went over Jesus' face. Yeah. Nicodemus in the Bible was the one who brought the embalming materials to the tomb and helped Joseph of Arimathea lay Jesus to rest. Right. So there's there is established a biblical connection between Nicodemus and the shroud. Huh. Sounds like there's a whole there's a whole component of this series that I am missing just because I I really don't have any experience with like Christianity. That's now I'll, I'll say there isn't a, at least a ton like something to be appreciated. Of, Maybe not like context sure. that you would have, but yeah. just something uh, to be appreciated. Not as much even as like the gap <clears throat> cycle, which oh. was very o overt with some of its uh, Christian symbolism, right. and is certainly oh. nothing like uh, the Book of the New Sun, <laughs> where where there is. Um, it, basically, every human character in the Book of the New Sun is named after a saint. And really? sometimes, when you start digging through the layers, you can... <laughs> okay. One of those layers you can dig into about the character that will reveal motivations or hidden depths to them comes from connecting the character to the saint and looking at what that saint did in, in their life. Damn. And then you can extrapolate that into the the narrative of Book of the New Sun. Gene Wolfe was a friggin' genius. Damn. Um, but yeah, th there's nothing like that going on here. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I did find it interesting because I'm always on the lookout for that kind of thing. Nice. Hey, how'd you feel about how Harry, like how I should say, specifically how Harry ended up solving a large part of the mystery here. Father Forthill just happens to be in a t-shirt and doing some carpentry. And Harry notices that he has the freaking Eye of Thoth tattooed on his arm. And he learns that Father Vincent supposedly has this tattoo as well. And then he puts it all together because Father Forthill was in the right place at the right time doing exactly the right thing. Is this another I one of those like, liked that. God works in mysterious ways things? Because if it, if it is, Ooh. I feel like that kind of cheapens it if that's the case. Because dude, like, it's, I don't know. I I, I didn't feel it. really. Yeah. Just so, uh, like so, this this may not have been solved if Father Fordhill just 
might not have been doing do-it-yourself work right there in the t-shirt look the groundwork has been laid in this series for for this type of faith-based magic yeah god that's the thing though but, is that like now that makes it feel cheap for me why because it's already been established this is sanderson it just feels like foreshadowing a lot of a lot of the main struggle can and may very well especially in the future just be coincidental like in in in, in terms of being able to that's solve how problems. every series goes like I, I that's how so many things in like the stormlight archive or mistborn go down or warbreaker like yeah or the they wheel of time of... even like this is but this is why foreshadowing like it would be cheap if it weren't foreshadowed but it was foreshadowed and and that's that's why I liked it and and honestly uh I I liked the scene with Father Forthill quite a lot uh where Harry's like I want to destroy something and Father Forthill in again like a very um kind of a, a catholic philosophical manner gently moves him away from the destructive nature and into a constructive nature yeah i i yeah. liked that a lot um, i like father I Forthill liked... as a character I oh yeah father Forthill's great uh the He's more lo- we get I about him that dude. yeah yeah uh i liked seeing him um kind of dressed down a little bit uh i, I liked the fact that he he had him in that scene, not in like you know, just like a cassock and a collar, the way priests are well, always be then represented. The, the mystery wouldn't have been solved, right? <laughs> like, uh, but but that's a thing. Like Catholic priests don't always walk around in in a full cassock and a collar. Like they wear other clothes sometimes. Yeah, I suppose it's just like the only like, time we've seen him do that, dress casual, was the time we was the one time we well, needed him to dress but, casual. But we have the impression that he does this often when he's over at. Yeah. Uh, the carpenters and that was something that resonated with me uh so my parents you know growing up basically wherever we lived um my parents went out of their way to make friends with the local priests we had priests over for dinner often and so i got used to seeing priests in more casual clothing um very often they would wear a collar but they would wear a collar with a t-shirt you know or yeah. it's not always this very formal wear. And so I could see the Carpenters being a similar kind of family to my family, where they have the priests they're friends with over all the time and, and in less formal settings. And, uh, yeah, I, I liked that. In fact, I may have just, like, talked myself into making that my third favorite scene in the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, well, you make a good case for it. You make a good case uh, for it. Okay. Um, uh, I already talked about the yeah. duel. It was okay. I already talked about. It. I love oh, <laughs> just <laughs> the fact that Harry really does want to piss off Ebenezer. Uh, that was that was a pretty good one. Oh yeah. Oh. Um. Okay. So what happened? There was with this supposed prophecy from I'm gonna get butcher this name. Al Sheravas. Al Sheravas. There was a prophecy. Uh, yeah. He was Harry was going to die and i'm using air quotes if he went after the shroud but the city would die if he hadn't so he goes after the shroud anyway and he lived like the only way i can try to explain this maybe if i was reaching would be it was the fact the that barabbas shiro died curse. and harry's what's that yeah it was the barabbas curse and shiro took on the curse to so shiro died in harry's place yeah, yeah. okay because it like it was said that harry was supposed to be the one dying there after all before shiro offered himself but then 
makes me wonder why the prophecy in the first place. Because going forward now, I'm not now I'm not going to trust any prophecy because I'm like, oh well, unless someone else, unless another subject comes in and takes over, like I guess the subjects of the prophecy are interchangeable. Like I don't know, it kind of cheapened it for me. I keep using that word. I shouldn't be saying that. I still, I've done a lot of bitching. No, I love I, this I book. I think that's fair. I think that's a very fair complaint. Um, we haven't really seen prophecy play a major role and come true in this. I mean, maybe he's just making a point of subverting the trope of prophecy since he's leaning so hard into other tropes in, sure. in this series. Um, but I just... For me, it just kind of washed over me. Like, yeah, I, I didn't feel like that big a deal. I just, I feel like if I hear another prophecy in the future and in, in another one of the future books, I'm just gonna be like, okay, but if this prophecy is about Susan, or if this prophecy is about Chicago, or like, what if, like, what if there's another one of these curses there, and then the subjects are just inter- interchangeable? It doesn't feel as potent when I, or I don't feel as frightened now with prophecy uh-huh. when I know that it can just be, you know, they could, they could, they could. Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? They can bamboozle it. Like, I don't know. I mean, this did feel like a pretty extreme situation. Like, <laughs> okay. you had a knight of the freaking cross, like yeah, one of the most uh, powerful fair. figures. That's fair. I'll, like, I'll give you that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I have a really dumb, really, really dumb. Both of my uh, next ones are just here. as dumb. I promise. Go for it, dude. Go At for it. At the very beginning of chapter fifteen, uh, when Harry has bad dreams. And uh, and he talks about how he has this Mickey Mouse alarm clock. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And he and he thinks about like you know I wouldn't sleep in the same room with a person who would smack Mickey Mouse. And I don't know why it just reminded me of the South Park Mickey Mouse like Red Rocks episode. Oh God, <laughs> I saw a clip from that <laughs> where Mickey like Mickey Mouse is just straight evil and is like breaking guys' knees and, like, yep, yep. and just I've abusing seen the clip everybody. i where he goes on a rant about China, I think. <laughs> yeah, like... Yeah. Just, and, <laughs> and it ends with with Mickey Mouse, like, inflating and, like, flying over the town of Morris in Colorado and breathing fire. <laughs> and, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the the whole episode, every time, like, Mickey, you know, he, he's, he starts off being like, oh, you know, fun Mickey Mouse and, and has this goofy little, like, ho-ho, laugh. And then... He gets like more evil, and it'll be like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna kneecap you!" <laughs> like, <laughs> gets dark with it. It's yeah, really dark. But he keeps the little laugh, and I was like, ah, "I would, I would, I would smack that Mickey Mouse." <laughs> Listen, I, I love it when when bright things get dark. Like, I was a big fan of Happy Tree Friends when I was on the internet age, and I was 12, 13, 14 mm, years mm-hmm. old. I, I love the juxtaposition there. It does give me a bit of of funny. That's yeah, that yeah, yeah. it lands for me. I did like that line. Um, one I didn't like though, his lawn is green. It's February and his lawn is green. That doesn't strike you as strange. Sod works in mysterious ways. I, uh, I can see why some people trying like a little that too one. hard. Trying that a little one too hard. Ju- was but it was just okay. a little synthetic for me. I was like, yeah, that just felt like something that didn't need to happen. I was like, okay, come on. <laughs> I, I said <laughs> my points are going to be dumb too. Check out how dumb this next one is. Watch this. All right. Father Fordhill saves Harry's day with Dunkin' Donuts. Now, this is time for confessions. And it may not come as a surprise to any of our American listeners, but I, Rob Santos, I have never, ever tried Dunkin' Donuts. Of course, you're a Timmy's. You're, you're from Literally Canada. never. You're I'm a Timmy's, Timmy's Like, guy. obviously. I don't think I've ever been within 100 miles of a Dunkin' Donuts, unless they, are, they have some near the border in Detroit, in which case, 
Oh, I yeah, may have sure. been within a hundred miles of one. So this is this is gonna be dumb, Drew. I know we already have quite the hefty list of drinks for Rob to try and places for Rob to see when he visits you on that nebulous day in the future. But promise me that when I arrive, we are gonna hit a Dunkin' Donuts sometime. Yeah, we can I've, make that happen. I've got to see what all the hype is about. <laughs> I need to dunk a donut. That's what I need to do. So it's gonna happen. I mean, I'm I'm not a coffee guy myself. But I do love their Boston cream donuts. Phenomenal French crellers. Yeah. Their jelly donuts. <laughs> top tier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I need to. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Dunkin' Donuts is just. It's something I've seen so much. It's almost like it exists in my chi- part of my childhood brain. That just. I, I feel like the coffee's going to be like candy. You know? Like, I just. It's just <laughs> this thing I've only seen in movies and, and on TV. That's it. Right. I so. mean, they're, they're certainly effective with their marketing. Yeah, right. Um, they are. They uh, are I would right. say I liked that. That was a good touch because coffee and donuts is a staple, a Catholic staple. Like, oh yeah, you go and to mass, very... and after mass, there's coffee and donuts in the reception hall next to the church. Yeah, nice. Like, that that that's a thing. I loved Harry's quip there too. He's <laughs> saying, "Father, this is the closest you ever actually have come to converting me." <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was pretty good. I still like his jokes. I still like his jokes. I haven't written him off yet. I just I'm tired of of some of his flaws evolving while his his uh his positive traits just remain static but anyway i have a couple predictions i want to make how about you uh i have one last uh, miscellaneous point go for it i Hit guess it. this kind of ties back to the um kind of my my impressions of the way butcher represents catholicism okay at the very beginning of the book when uh dresden is meeting with father vincent in quotes yeah. father vincent and Father Vincent says, I have no illusions about it. It is a piece of cloth and not a magic carpet. Its value derives solely from its historical and symbolic significance. And I, mm-hmm. I highlighted that and I was like, no priest from Rome would ever say that. From Rome, eh? Like, well, it, it, that's right, no, from the Vatican. That's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, like, that took me out of the story to the point where I had to, like, stop and, and I just wrote, yeah, nah. Like, <laughs> what if that's part of just like a human, one well, of his human but, traits, not one of his like professional traits? Well, no, you know, here's the thing him as a character. Go on, here's sorry. the thing that wasn't Father Vincent. Oh, yeah, that's and true. When that, was that Snake reveal Boy. happened, I was Snake like, Boy. it makes sense. Uh, okay, okay, so I, yeah, that was a good little fulfillment of oh. um, foreshadowing for me, and that would also where like it. It almost frustrates me where I was like, if I had trusted Butcher to um, to represent Catholicism more than I did, uh, I would have immediately picked up on that and been like, oh, this this dude ain't a priest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so then, maybe. but because I, I had a, a metatextual issue with the way Butcher had represented Catholicism in, in an earlier book... I didn't pick up on that bit of foreshadowing. I think maybe he subverted a bit of your assumption there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was nice. nice. Yeah, it was, very, it was nice. very nice. So that was my last miscellaneous point. All right. I got a couple of predictions I want to make. Number one, it's going to be about Susan. I, I really, really quick, briefly mentioned this before. I think, and I still hope, that Harry and Murphy, Murphy, <laughs> Murphy eventually start seeing one another. But I think Susan is going to get wind of this. This is going to be at a bad time in Susan's life. Harry is going to realize that he wasn't a Murphy all along, despite arguing with his conscience about it, and that he fits better, you know, 
personality-wise with Murphy. But Susan is going to make a return later. Maybe not necessarily to Chicago, but to the story, wherever the story goes. She's going to be insanely jealous. Her inhibitions are going to be completely out of whack. Maybe her vampire instincts finally overwhelm her, and she threatens Murphy in some way. And Harry has to put Susan down like the reluctant but always tragic hero that he has to be. Right? So I think... This yeah, thing I'm going to be so mad if that prediction's correct. I, I, I will be a little I am irritated. so done with the Harry Susan romance plotline. <laughs> like, but I still, I somehow need as as just a reader to, for Harry and Murphy to get together. And oh, yeah, that I Susan know is out there at large. I need I need to like hope for it to happen. I have to think about how I how I like I can see it happening. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, so I I have a, a pseudo prediction. Okay, cool. Um, and I want to preface it by asking you a question. Okay. Do you think we've already met the character who will become the new Third Knight of the Cross? What if it's Little Harry? So, I thought about both Molly and Little Harry. But oh, really? I thematically okay. i don't think it fits to have two knights of the cross in the same family right. i think there was a deliberateness to the diversity of the three knights that we had a a baptist japanese man an agnostic uh black russian man and a a catholic american and i think there's there's going to be some sort of balance symbolism of um, you know, uh, representing different belief systems among the knights. Okay, that's fair. I yeah. think Harry's going to do it. I think he's going to eventually realize it's himself. Well, that's where I thought this was going when Shiro was giving him the blade. But then... Or... We just plain haven't met the person yet. I hope that there's somebody who comes to light in the future, and we assume that's who it is, and then they turn out to be evil. That would be oh, oh. that would be badass. No, I hadn't actually thought about it because I like I had assumed it was going to be Harry when Shiro was dying and giving him the blade, and then I was thinking to myself, "But this is Harry Dresden. He's got his own agenda. He still has his own things to do." And, I don't think this would be the right time, even if so. But then they talked about just guarding the blade, holding on to it until he finds the right person. And I was like, oh, okay, I can see that. But it ended there, my thought process. I hadn't even considered who else it might have been until you asked me that question. That's I just Part of the reason Harry that I lean toward Harry is because of the, uh, the thematic enmity of the Denarians, where they have been placed in direct opposition to the Knights of the Cross. And yeah. at the end of this, very clearly Nicodemus has replaced Shiro with Harry as his primary kind of nemesis. Yeah. Yeah. I, either way, either way, as long as these elements are involved, I feel like I'm going to definitely enjoy reading the future books. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I am interested in where the story's going. I, I will freely admit that. Uh, these have not been my favorite books in the world. Um, I probably never would have picked them up had it not been for uh, a Patreon recommendation, and I 
certainly wouldn't have read on uh, of my own will had had we not had so much uh, <laughs> pressure from our listener base and right. you know and and Rob getting the the pick of our next series and saying you know what, let's do this yeah it was um, time but I'm not I don't regret doing it I absolutely don't regret doing it I have on the whole enjoyed the books uh, but this isn't you know, knocking on the door of like my top 10 favorite series ever or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm also like, I don't even think I would say I, I would regret any book that we've done. Cause even if it's turned out to be horrible, it's still valuable to talk about, you know, sometimes we need a terrible book to really talk about. <laughs> to, to you gotta, what gotta vent all that, that frustration. Yeah. Need a, yeah. need a ruin yeah, for... of Kings to come along every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it too. I didn't want to say it. Uh, but you has, know, has there been any book we disliked as much as the Ruin of Kings? Oh yeah. Oh, not no. Sorry, not that much. But there was one, and I was trying to think of this earlier today, and I was like, well, there was another book recently I that mean, not too uh, recently. I was not a big fan of uh, Rage of Dragons. Right. Okay, that might have been it actually. But I, I at least finished that book. True. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to talk about some bad books if you're if you, because we're, we we spend so much time glowing. Honestly, I I'm just ex- I need to preface a lot of what I say with this is personal, this is objective because I we spend so much time glowing about Brandon Sanderson and Robert Jordan that and Robert Jackson Bennett and yeah. Stephen R. Oh. Donaldson and you know what? Glenn no, I'm Cook not going to put Jackson and... Bennett on that list because for me he's new because of this podcast, and so I I feel like everything I like about him has kind of been sort of objective. There's nothing that oh gotcha okay. Yeah, like Jackson Bennett is an, is a is a writer I fell in love with after we started the podcast, and so I was already sure. in objective mode when I had started reading him. But mm-hmm. writers like Sanderson and Jordan they kind of preclude any sort of objective feeling that I had because that was <laughs> <Right>. my <laughs> adolescence. So right, all right. Um, um, my second prediction. I want to get to my second prediction okay. before we right. go into favorite scenes, which we still have yet to do. Oh my God, we're going to run long again. Yeah, um, this is a hefty episode here. Hey, you can always tell if a book is good or not by how much time we spend on it. I think that's a better <laughs> metric, right? Well. Because okay. we, we did Rage of Dragons in like, what, 49 minutes or something like that? Uh, No, 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 no. We we took quite a bit longer for Rage of Dragons. Really? Um, An hour 33. Sorry, I meant to say Ruin of Kings. Oh my god. Uh, these they bo- these books blend together because they both do have dragons. Yeah, Ruin sorry. I meant Kings, to say Ruin of I Kings. I also there. think we spent over an hour on. Oh yeah? Okay. Um, I could be wrong. Yeah, I, well, I need to go back and check that. Well, that's that. the thing. It's like, uh, whether a book is good or bad, it's a good book for this show. Yeah. When there are things exactly. we can talk about. You, like, you stated uh, better in one sentence than I could uh, The stated. Ruin of Kings was an hour, two minutes. Oh wow, yeah. that long, eh? Yeah. That's, the, that's the episode I had the no name beer on, I think. As although, well. although it's funny <laughs> seeing it in it was in between the Dragon Reborn Part Two, which took us two hours and ten minutes, yeah. and the Shadow Rising Part One, which was an hour twenty four. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. Those are Robert Jordan books. Come on now, we yeah, have yeah, to yeah. spend a long time on those. <laughs> um, my second prediction: there is something up with Gentleman Johnny Marcone. I keep wanting to say Marconi. Just sounds better, but Dude, it just sounds better, right? I know it sounds better. It sounds more gangster, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. Sounds more like Italian. Uh, sounds more. Yeah, Marconi, I was very you know? disappointed when I found out that it's supposed to be Marconi. You know what? I'm making a decision right now. I'm gonna piss everybody off. I'm just gonna keep saying Marconi. Just see, uh, hey, I'm I'm down. Okay, let's do it. We're making the decision right. right now. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. It's Johnny Marconi, really baby. Because I'm Canadian, I'm just sorry, but this is uh, a. <laughs> something i'm not going to budge on so uh, marconi dude's super sus 
Like that stunt Blasted with the rope. Less than an episode pronouncing his name right. <laughs> yeah, that the stunt with the rope in Full Moon, like when he's hanging upside down, he cuts himself free by throwing a knife. Like, like I haven't exactly. Oh, met you a lot think of... he's actually magic? Something. No, there's something off. That's Ooh. all I'm saying. I haven't met a lot of aging billionaire gangsters in my time. Imagine that. But I, I don't imagine that they'd be going on hits with their goons. It, I don't feel like they typically make or they handle military style weapons with literally unthinking ease where they dodge attacks that are too quick to follow like he like, like he was doing against Nicodemus. He and did company. on the like, train. Yeah. I'm calling it now. There's something off or at least there's something off with the assumption that he's entirely human. I like I I loved seeing him arrive there at the end. That was a really cool scene with a great nisca- a discount National Guard chopper train robbery there. That was pretty cool. Uh but I'm convinced that there's more to Marcone, Marconi. I'm going to say it still stubbornly, Marconi. There's more to this guy than we yet know. I don't think he's entirely human. I don't think he's too powerful. But there's something going on there. Also, Wagner, I thought that was a little much, the choice of Flight of the Valkyries. I would have preferred some clear, uh, Credence Clearwater Revival, maybe, on no. demand. Some fortunate <laughs> sun action, but it's just me. Interesting. I'm, I'm sorry. I... I hadn't considered him as being magical just because in my experience the character trope that he fills isn't usually magical. Yeah. In in other um you know like the the gangster the crime boss like yeah, he can handle himself in a fight but his power is through his money and his influence That's in the underworld. I, too. I was like, ooh, I was kind of cool, hmm. like excited for that character who's not physically intimidating. That would but be he's... a really cool twist on the trope if that comes true. I'll say that. Like, I'm not sold on it, but it would be cool if it happens. What, like, what if it was the same kind of thing that's happening with Susan? Maybe not half vampire, but he might be like half turned into something else that the, the last step hasn't happened. Or he Was just... he implied to have any connections with the Fellowship? I can't remember. I don't think he was. I don't know. I don't rightly know. I don't. I don't remember if he mm. was or not either. Um, but yeah, I'm just. I'm paying attention because I'm, I'm expecting to hear something. Maybe some deal he's made with a demon or something that's off about his about him and and being entirely human. I think he's got some sort of edge. There's a reason he is where he is, and it's not just his brain, although he has the brain for it. Yeah. Okay. okay. I am ready for favorite scenes. How about you? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. All right. I'll start again. I should start with an honorable mention scene. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Okay. Michael versus Nicodemus, picking up the second of the blessed swords and and dual wielding the sons of bitches. Like that. Honestly, I feel like Charity deserved to see that. But I'm also equally (sighs) equally glad that she wasn't there for what happened next. She would have lost her mind. Yeah. (laughs) That was horrifying, but... Still though, that's ah, oh, that would be so cool to see somebody sketch that. Just the dual wielding the swords on the top of the train against Nicodemus. That's just so, so badass. Very nice. If if there was if he was to be to become an angel to ascend to angelhood, he would be badassiel. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, favorite, do you have an honorable mention, or should I just go into number three now? I do have an honorable mention. All right, let's hear it. But really, it's a dishonorable mention. Mm. I almost did a spit take there. Okay. And we, we've already touched on this. That that Harry and Susan sex scene was <laughs> okay, just notably bad. Okay, like, yeah. It was notably bad. 
um, uh, like if if I had just been reading these books for fun, if in some alternate universe Drew McCaffrey decided to pick up the Dresden Files and and uh, somehow made it past Full Moon and kept reading, I would have stopped right there. I would have been really? like, no. Nah. <laughs> what about if he like, been one of those lost individuals that we had talked about earlier who just for some reason or other would pick up with book five and just go into it for the first time? That would have been... Uh, oh, if, right? I, if I picked it up there, I wouldn't have <laughs> finished a single book in the series. Yeah. Yeah. I would have returned it to the store with a complaint. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I didn't like that scene either. I well, okay, well, and, and then I guess I'll, I'll add in an actual honorable mention, and it was um, meeting the archive for the first time. Ooh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun scene. I liked the archive. Uh, I liked Harry's interactions with her. Um, this was going to be my third favorite, but I, as I mentioned, it got bumped out, so. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so what was your third favorite? My third favorite was hel- uh, Harry helping Charity with the groceries and the vegetables, and then they finally mm. have an actual heart-to-heart. Like, they both needed yeah. that. It, not They didn't just both need honesty, but they needed to see a bit of humanity in the other person. I appreciate Charity more as a character now, because, I mean, even though her own explanations about why she distrusts Harry weren't in any way surprising, I mean, she's justified in much of that. What was surprising was the manner in which she flatly, like, to me, flatly denied her back on Michael's friend, no matter her personal feelings. Charity is a great character now, and I, I won't be yes. reading her with the, ex- the exasperation I'd felt previously when I go forward. Uh, she really shone in that scene, so that's my third favorite. Yeah, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Charity Carpenter. Yeah, I was annoyed by her previously, but now I'm not. Yeah. Okay, okay. well, yeah, is... my third favorite scene was what we talked about earlier with Father Fort Hill um, and Harry doing some work on the edition. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my second favorite, then, the uh, the previously mentioned <laughs> Great National Guard surplus chopper train robbery. I'm surprised they didn't make any great train robbery jokes in the in the book there. That's exactly Harry's territory, but okay, whatever. Um Specifically, the part that I loved was Harry. the moment Harry decided to jump forward and propel himself with the Fuego spell behind him. Like landing, even accidentally landing ahead of the Knights of the Cross. Maybe it's because he accidentally landed in front of them. Like It was just so representative of Harry Dresden as a character for me in the manner in which he just became this accidental badass. Mm-hmm. It sums up everything I still like about Harry Dresden in one okay. single move. He's not trying to be a badass. So when it happens, it's almost entirely by accident, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes he decides to own it, and I really like it. So that was my second favorite, when he made that jump. It was cool. Alright. Well, my second favorite scene was Michael and Cassius. Oh, Michael and Cassius. I thought you said Harry and Cassius. It was was the, the whole philosophical debate of that scene. The idea of mercy, the idea of um, the possibility of redemption. Uh, I think that was, uh, as I said earlier, that scene was at its core um, the most fundamentally Catholic, uh, honestly Catholic thing that Butcher has done with Michael. Uh, This idea that God's mercy is infinite and that it is not upon the people to pass judgment 
and yeah. that in, in fact we should give those around us as many chances to see the error of their ways and not to pass judgment on them yeah it's i'm glad it's like like sure there's a a physical kind of catharsis to that sequence where harry's like all right well they're going to show you mercy but i'm going to beat the crap out of you with a baseball bat um like there's a there's a certain primal satisfaction to that scene but to me the the best parts of the scene were michael refusing to execute cassius and then michael talking with harry after harry leaves the room and making yeah. it clear that even though Harry has done something horrible in that moment, just like Cassius, mercy is there for Harry. Mercy is there for anybody. Everybody makes mistakes. But that your mistakes should not define you. As long as you're willing to learn from them. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because I was, I was considering while you were talking there about... My reasons for liking Harry, oh, Harry, I keep mixing up Harry and Michael for some reason. They're just so, <laughs> their, their names are just so interchangeable. I don't know why. Um, but I keep, I keep thinking about what it is I like about Michael. And I realize that a lot of it is what I've been complaining about with Susan. It's about what he is. He's a very physically intimidating, very fun to read. He's a spec, he, his character is based around spectacle. And, and I, I've called him yeah. badass no less than 20 or 30 times so far. But it, I, I did appreciate that about the scene that we got such a, a direct view of his stubborn, not stubborn, his uncompromising and direct uh, uh, devotion to his ideals in this in mm -hmm. the scene that we that I got I got another who to like about Michael. Yeah. So I I did I I really really did like that scene as well. I actually probably would have mentioned it if I had remembered it in my uh in my choosing my favorite scenes. That's a great point to bring up. Yeah. Nice. So what was oh. your favorite scene? My favorite scene is the final scene. Well, the, the, the scene that sets up the next book, I should say, when mm -hmm. Harry hears that coin plink and he sees the, the cursed coin land by little Harry Carpenter and his instinct to protect that child without even thinking about himself. He just dives forward and he manages to grab it away. You know, it, it, it's so horrifying for both Dresden and for the reader because of recognizing Nicodemus and his super chilling just farewell and exit. Like, that was some in my opinion, some Sanderson-level, heart-ripping cliffhanger. It was a masterwork of a closing mm -hmm. scene, I think, because of just what the, the, the quality of the feeling that it leaves the book you, that leaves you with at the end of the book. It's just spectacular, I thought. Yeah, there was a very different sense um, comparing this with, uh, was it Grave Peril? where it ended with Harry going in to play D&D &D with the Alphas. Uh, I think that was the last book. Or Summer Night. Because Grave Peril ended with the, the three words, right? Yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah, so Summer Night. Um, massive difference in tone with those endings. Oh my god, uh, yeah. And it's, it's nice to see that Butcher... I mean, we've talked about how he knows how to open a book and he knows how to close a book. Yep. But it's nice... To see that he can close a book in a different way. Yeah. It's, you yeah. know, that he has... Yes. Yeah. Love the way you put that. So, 
I'm ready for the final draft. Well, I, I have my favorite scene still. Oh my god, I do this every week! How do I do this? <laughs> Alright, uh, go ahead, I, man. <laughs> I don't have much more to say about it, because we've actually talked quite extensively on it. My oh, favorite yeah? scene was uh, Harry and Molly in the treehouse. Okay, yeah, okay. It was Harry being a father figure to to this girl who's who's really oh, struggling to I think girls make that those kind of adapt. jokes to their fathers constantly. Well, I don't know. I maybe not a father, a father figure. figure, but but uh, no, I I still want to say it, like a father figure, but like he because he demonstrates an understanding of her that her own father can't. Yeah, maybe like an older brother. Weird as it is, like an older brother feeling, but someone she can yeah. be a little more open with, a little more herself with than with her parents. I can see. Uh-huh. My, I love Michael as a character and Charity both, but I can see it being a nightmare to be their children. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did like I did like that. We do get to see. It looks like a part of Molly that we're not. We wouldn't get to see if she was just around her parents. I do appreciate right. that. Right. Yeah. So that said. Final draft. Well, I'm sipping on some brilliant um, flavored water once again, some natural fruit flavored water by President's Choice, which is just a, a really wide brand here. This is peach mist. It's peach flavored water. Artificial mm. sweetener in it, so that's not the greatest thing for the body. But I decided not to drink again. As much as I've been rambling this episode, it's not. it hasn't been as slurred <laughs> as it would have been otherwise. So, sure. And I had a coffee before I started. That's probably why I'm rambling a little bit, but... Um, yeah, this peach water is still delicious stuff. Goes down nice. This is like my third one today, though. I gotta slow down on them. Yeah. <laughs> what, are, what are you drinking, dude? Well, I am drinking a Russian Imperial Stout from Adroit Theory Brewing Company. Oh, we've had in Adroit Washington, Theory before. Washington, D.C. Yep. I have had Adroit Theory on. Yeah, they have some pretty good names. Uh, this is a a beast of a beer. Just. Powerful, powerful roasted malts, sharp alcoholic tinge to it. It's 13.5%, and this is not barrel Like, this is just straight, straight, strong beer. Okay. Um, uh, But it's called What Evil Lurks. What Evil Lurks. And I couldn't get away from this one. Uh, because of sort of the theme of this book, where we thought this was going to be about, you know, the series was turning to, this is the vampire war. And then out of nowhere, we have this new, much bigger threat coming out of the shadows. 100% approved. And And my thought coming out of this book is, okay, well, what more is there? What else is out there? That is just waiting. Anduriel. <laughs> and what... And perhaps even Lucifer. He's mentioned as being Lucifer's captain. Yep. And that's cool yep. stuff, man. Yeah. So, I'm excited to see what more Butcher has in store for us. 100% agree. So much agree. Yeah. So, this has been episode 133 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we'll be heading right on into Blood Rites, uh, the sixth book of the Dresden Files, so keep your eye out for that. As always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon at 
patreon.com slash inkingoutloud or on coffee that is ko-fi.com slash inkingoutloud uh, where you could do a one-time donation uh, if you don't want to dive into the deep end of Patreon, but you still you know want to support Inking Out Loud. Um, yeah, we're we're pretty thrilled with our artist these days. She's doing some oh my god, pretty pretty freaking incredible stuff. The things with these she's Dresden been sending files. us about these Dresden oh. files. Oh my god, she yeah she yeah. that woman just keeps getting better and better. Yeah, so you know we we uh, you know we. We pay her, and we want to be able to pay her more. All of all of our Patreon uh, proceeds go. Yeah, Danielle Danny. fell candy. I just called um, her that woman. I can't leave it like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, ch- uh, check us out on Patreon or Coffee. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.